Well, I thought I'd really begin by describing what a mystic is and what mysticism is to some extent. It's something I, I went into rather deeply for the purpose of this book on Christian medieval mystics. And I was drawn to it largely because when I read them, I felt there were many links between the way they were thinking in, say, the 11th, 12th and 13th century and the way Buddhists were thinking and my heart is in Buddhism and so I, I couldn't help being very interested in this sort of um, what was occurring at that time too so I thought I'd try and bring it out in a book and I have made quite a number of links in this book between um, Buddhism and the Sufis and Christians of that time so in medieval Europe a mystic was had quite a sort of definition, a proper definition and it was someone who experienced inner or as they put it secret knowledge of God and this knowledge was recognized as being totally different from if you like our usual state and for, from anything previously known this is the sort of great thing about it and yet at the same time it felt more real <laughs> and more right than other states and it was felt as taking place at a different level within the person and certainly at a different level than the intellectual processes so that it involved the whole person and the mystic was aware of himself and others in a new sort of way and it was as though a clarity which was really distinct altogether from the reasoning mind had become revealed as the true source of himself or herself and of all the world and St. Augustine alluded to this state when he said my mind in the flash of a trembling glance came to absolute being that which is so the world as it is not as we usually see it which is always through the coloured spectacles of our desires and our hopes and our ambitions but actually as it is um, revealed itself to the mystic as complete and perfect and Risebrook, who is one of the mystics I've written about in this book, says, The Spirit possesses God essentially in naked nature, and God the Spirit. And the more the mystic was able to live such clarity, actually put it into practice, if you like, the closer his words and his actions corresponded to reality. So the word secret didn't mean something obscurely mysterious um, and, and it certainly didn't mean something supernatural or irrational it, uh, mysticism has nothing to do with darkness I would say <laughs> it's a way of illumination and light and secret in the medieval sense meant the insight which only comes when you really go within yourself and 
also it goes so far beyond the ordinary range of language that it's almost impossible to put into words and so the secret came to mean that really it didn't mean you know the sort of um, something which no one can only can never know so the medieval mystic knew a reality which to him was ineffable if you like and it transcended his feeling of himself as a person. It was included it, but it was more than that. And it gave him a feeling of wonderful certainty and of joy. And he felt at home in the world and one with everything that is, able to speak, to work, to be, because he was utterly at home. I think there's always been one great question which has bothered people from time immemorial. I'm just reading at the moment, trying to go back as far as I can in, in the time span of religion. And it's the question of how to overcome separateness and how to find union and how to transcend one's own individual life and to find that one moment. And Eckhart, the, another great mystic whom I talk about in this book, quite about, he called it, I say it, with a capital I if you like, the nameless nothing and God's isness, the isness of God, the isness of ourselves. And so that great gulf, that seemingly very difficult thing that we have to cross between being a sort of perfectly ordinary person in the world and somehow finding this transcendence became to the mystic something that he could do, <laughs> if you like. And so clearly was he illumined by his knowledge that he became very practical in fact. And time and place which are the things that bind us most closely to a world, if you like, of being over-practical, thinking only about very practical things and never, never letting ourselves find some other meaning to the world. Time and place, to Eckhart anyway, were the sort of greatest enemies. But he could see that you can come to a right relationship with time and with place if you can get a full awareness of the present moment, this was one of the, um, the things which linked this kind of thinking with Zen Buddhism particularly. Because now, this moment now, is, is of an utmost importance really. And Eckhart said, God creates the world and all things in an ever-present now, continual creation, he who stands continually in a present now, in him God the Father begets the Son without ceasing. I think these are a tremendously sort of telling things that are said there that um, the church was to find very difficult indeed to cope with. <laughs> and throughout recorded history, really, there have always been people who, if you like, moved away on the social life of their time and 
spent their lives searching for that sort of awareness that Eckhart is talking about, for the sense of being. And when they've found this inner beingness, they've lived it knowing the world in a new way, as if in a new dimension. So the mystic, and this is some sort of definition of a mystic, is one who is on the path to being truly what he is in his most transcendent innerness. And the more he is himself, the more he is real and able to be at one with all creatures, then he is no longer apart from the world. (laughs) In a sense, we have to go apart from the world in order to find this awareness. But having found it, then we are the greatest use to the world after this. He can come back and, and be totally with the world and not in any part separate from it. And I think most of us feel most of the time that we are, to some extent, separate from the world around us. There's a sort of always a gap between me and you. and um, There's this, this funny sort of barrier that we're within our skin. We're not really sort of at one with what is. So we have to somehow bridge the gap and we very often need to go apart for a time into silence, into meditation to discover how we can come into relationship with actual reality of the world. And the great revelation which was common to the medieval mystics and really to mystics of all religions but I think has been sadly undeveloped in Christianity since that time was that all things have their being through what I call the God ground of existence. That which is, is God. And when I say God, I'm using God in the broadest sense possible. I would prefer not to use the word God because I think it's become uh, charged with all sorts of concepts and emotions and people reject it or they like it too much or, you know, it's a very fraught word, the word God. And yet it's terribly hard to find anything else that really um, expresses that which is beyond, if you like. The God ground is how I put it throughout this book rather than simply God because I don't feel that God as a person has, is a helpful analogy and I've used ground, God ground as being extending the field so to speak so to find the reality of oneself one also has to find this God ground of oneself and in the case of the medieval <coughs> they, had, um, they took the teaching of Dionysius, the Areopagite. Now, there was St. Paul had one of his (coughs) disciples called Dionysius and in the, I think about the 6th century, a Syrian monk took over that name, which was very common, as you know, all biblical biblical names were taken over and used. He took that name and he wrote some remarkably good things. And when the um, medieval mystics came to read this, they assumed that it was St. Paul's disciple. And so they gave it um, 
an importance that they might not have given it had they thought it just came from a Syrian monk. But now, so in a way, we're very lucky <laughs> that they did that because we've now got a marvellous um, collection of works based on what he said, James Reynolds. And um, on the other hand, when they did come to read his work, they must themselves undoubtedly have experienced a lot of what he said, and so that's why they took up his, his work. And he talked what's called the negative way. You've probably, some of you, come across this phrase. And that's to say that he believed when we give names and attributes to what he calls the absolute no thing which is above all existence, we lose its reality. Our mind can never know its source while it carries about taking our own limited human intellect as the boundary of all knowledge. Like somebody who searches for the sun inside the house and doesn't go out and simply experience it. We have to, he said, deny to ourselves all self-created images of God and all ideas about him so that we can become empty enough for the reality of God to make itself known to us. I don't know if this, this idea has a meaning for us all. I think it's a very hard one. It's the basis of Buddhism to a large extent and some of Hinduism. And it's, it's not one that's very clearly put in the West ever except through people such as the medieval mystics. So it's not very well known in the West. This idea that what we're going to find when we try to clear our minds of images and thoughts is going to be something more real <laughs> than we've yet experienced. That is new to, to many people in the West, I think. He said that a warm, rich, satisfying symbol, which most of us cling to, is too easily come to. And emotions were not regarded very highly by the mystics in those days. Man must let go of all knowledge and all experiences too, even visionary and heavenly ones, said Dionysius. He must go out into a dark unknowing in ignorance. And so, in a way, his, his method of really freeing yourself from all ideas can be called a sort of way of freedom, <laughs> since we negate or we leave behind all our bondage to our ideas and feelings, because I think most of us don't realize how terribly tied up we are in our concepts in our ways of thinking. Um, one of the modern mystics that I shall be speaking about, Gurdjieff, used to have all sorts of methods to shake people up, <laughs> get them free of their habits of thought. 
because we do form habits of thought and we do get certain ideas in our heads and then we go on from there and these basic ideas never change I mean, you may change on a sort of higher level but the basic ones don't and really it's a good idea to change them <laughs> shape them out and so Dionysius in fact took the image of a statue to describe what he was meaning about the negative way because he said those who make a statue from the rough stone first remove all the superfluous matter that hinders the pure vision of the hidden form and thus reveal the hidden beauty merely by this removal so he's, he's um, saying if you like if we can lose our ideas and become as empty as we possibly can that's removing the sort of the rough stone and merely by that removal we will apprehend reality his um, work his great work was called Mystical Theology and it is in print it's possible to get hold of it it was translated in the 9th century by John Scotus the original I think I've correct me, I'm anyway he was often called John the Scot which is his DNA Scotus means Scot and his own mystical understanding was obviously very profound and it's circulation, the circulation of this work strongly affected the medieval mystics and in the cloud of unknowing which is an English work and a very very fine work indeed some of the passages there are very close to the John, John the Scott's work and one of the passages I've got here lift up your heart unto God with a meek stirring of love and meet himself and none of his goods and there too look that you loathe to think of anything but himself so that nothing works in your mind nor in your will but only himself and do that in you to forget all the creatures that ever God made and the works of them so that your thought or your desire is not directed or stretched to, to any of them neither in general nor in special so the three essential beliefs of mysticism that the beingness of oneself is also the God ground or timeless reality that to find this unconditioned beingness we have to let go our dependence on conditioned things and that actually to do this reveals to us the nature of our true life as a human being these three beliefs are not only those of Dionysius actually and the Christian mystics who followed him but also the basic beliefs of all religions if you look at it properly and particularly Buddhism I think so how did they get on these mystics you may wonder because what they're saying is not what we hear today nor what we've heard for perhaps many hundreds of years in the Christian church they got on pretty badly Eckhart in particular said things like 
You shall know him, meaning God, without image, without semblance, and without means. And then he sort of answers himself, he has a dialogue. But for me to know God thus, with nothing between, I must be all but he, he all but me. And then he says, I say God must be very I, I very God, so consummately one, that this he and this I are one is, I like that, in this isness, working one work eternally. But so long as this he and this I, to wit, God and the soul, are not one single here and one single now, then I cannot work with nor be one with that he. <laughs> so that's a very sort of strong statement. And to know God without means, in other words, without the church. For that sort of statement, Eckhart was brought to trial for heresy. And the attitude of the medieval church towards its mystics was one of suspicion and bare tolerance. And there was no toleration at all for a group such as the Friends of God. And many of their writings were destroyed, or they were rewritten, and this was a very sort of subtle thing to do, um, very, very badly, you know, with the intention of making them appear heretical and scandalous. And the background to the lives of the mystics then was one of really fearful tension. This is where they, uh, it links a little bit with what, I forget her name, who was speaking here last time, was speaking about medieval uh, sh- uh, theme. Shirley Tools. <laughs> yes, Shirley, that's right, yeah. <coughs> the medieval theme in general. Uh, in fact, when John and Scott first brought the teachings of Dionysius to light, the church didn't really know what to make of them. <laughs> I mean, it was so so peculiar, so odd in a way, that's in the ninth century, and, and really the church was taken unaware, of, and uh, it didn't know how to fight a concept of God which seemed quite alien to Western theology. And so it was puzzled, rather than sort of condemning, and nobody could understand him. And in, three cent- in, in the three centuries following, he was virtually forgotten. In fact, I think there's a legend that he was killed at the Malmesbury School uh, by being stabbed to death by the ten of his pupils. I don't know if anyone's heard that legend. <laughs> but anyway, by the end of the 12th century, it was all changing for the worse. There was a book by John Scotus, which was discovered at that time. The church then did begin to sort of prick its ears up. The society was, this was the Society of the Friends of God, I think, was infiltrated, spied on and denounced and the usual thing its members were stripped of their clerical robes and um, many were burnt at the stake the man who had discovered John the Scots work his bones were taken out of the coffin and publicly burnt <laughs> and books by Aristotle and others were burnt and you know marvellous <laughs> bonfires what's gone on um, but nevertheless of course if you do a thing like that the ideas go underground and gain new strength. And that's exactly what happened. And all these ideas were kept going because they'd really got a hold. The more you, you publicly condemn something, the more stronger it's going to grow as a rule. So anyway, those who could be caught were burned at the stake. And this caused a wide disbursement of all those sympathetic people right out to Germany, 
from its liberation aspect. And links were formed with other groups and new sects rose and fell. And it's very really interesting that in this period, which is sort of the um, 12th, 13th century, particularly the 12th, I think, how many people were against the church. I never realized this until I came to work on this, this subject, how hard the church worked to keep itself going, really. One thinks of it as a sort of grand institution, but in fact it wasn't by any means. Oh, yeah, I put here the 13th century as being particularly explosive, except it was. And it was in this century that the move to individuality and the revolt from authoritarianism seemed to make itself fully felt, particularly in Britain. Many people, whether they were within or without the church, came to express a feeling that mankind had lost the way and that the simple teaching of Christ had been buried beneath the structure of the church. And I think this is very interesting, a back-to-Christ feeling began to grow and found expression in a very idealistic movement, which, in fact, we hear very little about again. The Sisterhood of the Beguines and the Brotherhood of the Begars. This movement started very quietly with the creation of the Beguines in the 12th century. And this was an act which was both economic and compassionate because the terrible crusades and the wars of Central Europe had taken such a toll of male lives of men that every town and village had its hordes of destitute women and they were left without protectors and with no means of livelihood except begging or prostitution. And they used to go to the marketplace and beg their food daily. And in 1180, a certain priest of Flanders called Lambert Lebeg, that means the stammerer, who stammers, out of pity for these ragged and starving victims of battle, gathered a number together, both virgins and widows, and settled them in a large house. And they were to live a religious life, but as lay people. So they had the sheltered advantages of the convent, but without its restrictions, and this became very popular, <laughs> and soon the Sisterhood of the Beguines, as they were called after Lebeg, began to grow, and settlements of houses were built, and came to be known as Beguinage. And the growing number of women who found a refuge there also found a new life. There was leisure for meditation and prayer, and there was a feeling of sharing in a sort of family atmosphere, and there was social life, and there were jobs and responsibilities to keep them occupied. And so popular did the movement become that by the middle of the 13th century, every city had societies of beguines. And with the impetus of the Back to Christ movement, men too were beginning to follow this example and forming associations called beggars, and that's how we get our name beggars. The Beggars became groups of religious laymen who went about the country doing good in whatever way they could. And they took care of the sick, and they buried the dead, and they preached in the local tongue, which was very important, because many, at that time, you should preach in Latin. And they lived partly from begging, and partly from working. But all this was really too good to last. 
As early as 1244, the church was showing alarm at the freedom and the independence which was given to the Beguines. And by the end of the century, they were regarded as really being a thorough pest. <laughs> they were very popular with the people, much more so than the orders of monks. And consequently, their begging reaped a bigger harvest. <laughs> they were getting more money, which always seems to be the basis of, of everything. Their burials, and they, they also uh, administered the mass, were conducted without any clergyman, and so there were no fees to be gained for the church that way, and they had no vows of obedience to keep, and yet they lived as though they were following the religious life, which was, <laughs> again, a thing that uh, proper religious people don't like, because they wore special robes, and they acknowledged superiors only among themselves, and they even preached on the profound things of the church such as the Holy Trinity and so on. And so the church tried to smother them <laughs> and uh, they were called heretical and at last there was an edict issued against them. They, the Guines were absolutely smashed because when they were caught they, were, they could be burnt and they really were thrown out of all their houses they lost everything and they were totally smashed. The Begars were able to be more independent, to travel, to get to other countries, to escape the worst of the, of the church's um, punishment. And so really that's the background in a sense to the mysticism of those 13th century and early 14th century mystics. It was a sort of spiritual and psychological landscape, if you like, which deeply affected the mystics themselves, especially one such as Rysbrook, a Flemish mystic, who had a lot to do with the beginning. But in fact, that period, although it was very turbulent in the 13th century, was less woeful in some ways than the 14th century, where the plagues were rampant. In the 14th century, if you turned to the church for guidance, you were lucky if you got any, because it was so split by warring factions that very existence might be considered as one of the evils of the time, in a way. There was the Babylonish captivity of the church when the papal seat was established at Avignon and the popes became puppets of France. They were, the king ordered them what to do. And this was, this was terrible. And then there was a split and you had two popes in different places and with loyalties divided. Really, it was a, a, an awful mess. And then there were earthquakes everywhere. <laughs> it was as though nature joined in. You know, there was violent earthquakes throughout the Rhine Valley and the city of Baal came crashing down. Um, and then the Black Death. That was the... And people saw the Black Death as the wrath of God for all that was going on. So you can tell from that how traumatic the, the things that were going on were, <laughs> in a way. I mean, we always think that we're, with our nuclear bombs, that we're having a dreadful time. But when we compare what we are, how we are actually living to that sort of time, it's nothing like it. And the Black Death, I mean, was 
really it, it erased the population in many areas. It reduced <coughs> the population to a tenth all over the place. I don't know if people know, they're not very far away from here, near Beminster, there's a tree with a notice on it. The posy tree. Do people know this? You've seen this? Oh. Well, there's a notice. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like um, the villagers of, I can't remember the village now, came to this tree in the year 1666 bearing flowers and herbs to, because the Black Death had come to the village and they hoped that this would send it away. And they took the bodies of the dead and carried them to a communal grave somewhere close by. It's, rather, it's a very moving message, I think, really. And it's pinned to a tree in a rather obscure lane somewhere near Venice. So I can't tell you exactly which lane. So really, for two centuries, Europe was a battlefield with wars. I mean, it wasn't just a sort of major war. It was little wars, you know, every... Um, little Duke had his own army and um, if you didn't die by the sword you died of starvation or plague it was a, a really terrible time and yet contrasting with all this sort of black background was the clarity of the mystics and although they never shunned the strife that was around them yet they, by concentrating on the inner life they Brought, must have brought perspective and balance to all those who could hear them and they were extremely popular so I, I must say though about, about England perhaps but England escaped quite a lot of all this we had a lot of things in common with the European times with the, with the countries because um, there was a great deal of toing and froing the channel was, you know, alive with boats crossing all the time with people. Yet there's a different feel about the English mystics and about the church at that time in England. There was perhaps a stronger emphasis on personal independence and freedom and a love of simplicity and directness and a burning indignation at the ecclesiastical vices of the day. Somehow the English church was sort of eating its way out of the Roman cocoon and as was the English language at that time. Until the 14th century, Latin was the universal tongue. But then by parliamentary decree, English became the recognised language of the realm. And with that came a great uprush of poetry and prose and everyone took off with a, a new sort of, well not new, but you know, with, with a, a proper language. And in, this, in these new beginnings, the English mystics lived and worked. And somehow their prose has a sort of strength and vitality that we, we don't hear today. I've got some examples here that I'll give you. And in spite of the Black Death, and in spite of this sort of brutish cruelty still to be found at all levels, and the dirt and the poverty. Medieval England was merry England, <laughs> in a way, and it kept a lighter touch than her continental neighbours. Trevelyan, the historian, says this, the closer we look at medieval England, the more we shall feel inclined to picture it as young, hardy and joyous. To begin with, the country was full of colour, 
The churches glows with stained glass and painted walls. The dresses of the wealthy, men as well as women, were gorgeous and brilliant. And if the peasantry wore more serviceable russets and browns and blues, they usually managed to introduce a splash of red or other bright colour in their hoods or kerchiefs. And the country was full of song, and with this went dancing. So that gives us a slightly different picture of England. And I think now I'll turn to some of the things that the mystics themselves said, having given you that background. I've picked out a few passages which seem to me very, very good ones, from the English mystics, really. Julian of Norwich, and there's nobody I'm sure who hasn't heard of Julian of Norwich here. You don't worry, by the way, who hasn't? <laughs> be afraid of confessing. <laughs> well, anyway, Julian, who's um, was a marvellous person. She lived, actually herself, formed part of the church in Norwich. She lived there as a recluse in this room which was attached to the church. And she had one window which looked onto the outside world and one window which looked onto the, into the church. So she could be there for all the services and she could also talk to people who would come to her window with their problems and all sorts of things like that. And when she was in meditation, she would put a curtain with a cross on it across her window <laughs> so then you wouldn't disturb her. And at that time that she was there, Norwich was a very busy centre. It was second only to London as a great trade centre and um, had a quite a big population. And people travelled through all the time from Belgium and the Lowlands and the friars used to come, so she was, there was a great deal she would know and she was kept in constant touch with things, I'm sure. And she wasn't herself a remarkably sort of sweet person. Motherly, no doubt. Uh, she's often called Mother Julian. I think, in fact, her name ought to be Dame Julian because she belonged to a sort of order of dames. But the, her story really is, it's a very strange story, and in case you don't sort of know the story, I'll describe it a little, that when she was very young, by the way, we don't really know, oh yes, we do know her dates, on the whole we know her dates. She was born about 1343, that's right. She did in fact write a sort of little autobiography, but not very much. She felt that she shouldn't talk about herself as a person. So she gave very, very little detail indeed about herself. And we, historians have pieced together what we do know about her. All she was concerned with was talking about her revelations and what she discovered about God. Um, but she did say about herself that she had three revelations. And she gives a date of them. <laughs> She's sort of uh, very precise. She says these revelations was showed to a simple, unlearned creature living in this mortal flesh in the year of our Lord 1373 on the 13th of May, <laughs> which is very clear. <laughs> and she always refers to herself as a creature. She never, never talks of herself as sort of somebody who's important in her own right. She didn't think she was. She said, um, now I beg your pardon, these were the major revelations she had then. She said, before this time, the creature desired three gifts from God, 
The first was understanding of the passion. The second was bodily sickness at 30 years of age. The third was to have by God's gift three wounds. And she explains what she meant by this. For the first grace, I thought I had a great feeling for the passion of Christ. I longed to have yet more, and I wished I'd been there at that time with Mary Magdalene and others who were Christ's lovers, that I might have seen with bodily eyes the passion that our Lord suffered for me, and suffered with him as others did who loved him. And other signs or showing of God, I desired I never none until my soul should be gone from my body. My meaning was that if I were given to know the bodily pains of our Lord, and of all the true lovers who were living at that time and saw his pains, for I would have been one of them and suffered with them, I should afterwards have more true understanding of the passion. And for the second grace that came into my mind freely, without any seeking, a longing desire to have of God's gift of bodily sickness. I wanted that this sickness should be grievous to the point of death, with I myself believing that I should die, and every other creature that saw me thinking the same, for I wished to have no comfort in earthly living. In this sickness I wanted to have all manner of pains, bodily and mental, that I should have where I should have died, all save the actual departing of the soul. I hoped that it might be a help to me when I did come to die, for I longed to be with God soon. These two desires, the passion and the sickness, I wanted with a condition attached, for I believed that this was not an ordinary prayer. So I said, Lord, you know what I want. If it's your will that I should have it, and if it is not your will, good Lord, be not displeased with me, for I will only as you will. And this sickness, which I thought of in my youth, I desired to have when I was thirty years of age. And for the third grace, I heard a priest telling the story of St. Cecilia, and how she received three wounds from a sword in the neck, from which she pined to death. I was so moved that I conceived a mighty desire that God would grant me three wounds in my lifetime. These the wound of repentance, the wound of compassion, and the wound of great longing for God. And just as I asked for the other two with a condition, so I asked for the third with no condition at all. Well, I think she, when she said she was young when she asked for these things, she must have been pretty young, probably. I mean, these are the sort of things that one wants, perhaps, when one's in one's early teens. There's a sort of morbidity about those wishes that I connect with adolescence, actually. And I think she herself rather forgot about them. Because it was some years later, the two desires passed from my mind, she said. The third one dwelt with me all the time. But in order to forget two such unusual desires, <laughs> So they passed right out of her mind. I think quite a good bit of time must have elapsed. Anyway, they, they all came true. I mean, in proper karmic fashion, if you like, or psychosomatic fashion. She developed a seemingly fatal illness when she was 30. And she became paralyzed. First in the lower half of her body and then in the upper, so she could hardly breathe. And then she started to have her revelations. So it's very easy to say, well, this is a real example of a hysteric, uh, this is the sort of thing created by the church with its rather morbid tendencies, because in those days there was a lot of self-inflicted punishment went on, you know, quittings and things of this sort. And nowadays nobody would have these revelations because 
we don't go in for that style of thing and all the rest of it. And I think there's, a, there's quite a lot of truth in that, but we have to remember that everybody has their own way of doing things and that what to us may seem an odd thing wasn't in those <coughs> days. This was the, the way they did things. <laughs> many, many people had revelations at that time. <laughs> it was common. And I don't think we should ever condemn, even though we may perhaps put a little judgment into it, a little critical judgment, but at the same time we should clear our minds of cancer, of, of habitual thinking, <laughs> so that we can be empty enough to receive what Julian felt and saw, and not what we think she ought to have felt and seen. So I tried to sort of relate her in that spirit rather than any critical spirit. And she had some lovely things to say when you do actually look at her in that way. For instance, she said, this is a very famous thing, she said, I saw a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, which seemed to lie in the palm of my hand, and it was round as any ball. I looked at it and thought, what may this be? I wondered how long it could last. I was answered in a general way, it is all that is made. And I wondered how long it could last, for I thought it might fall suddenly to nothing. It was so little. And the answer came to my understanding. It lasts and always shall last, because God loves it. And just in this way, everything has its being through the love of God. And in this little thing, I saw three parts. The first is that God made it. The second, that God loves it. And the third, that he sustains it. And until I am one to him and myself, I can never have full rest nor true bliss. That is to say, until I am so fastened to him that there is no created thing at all between my God and me. And this little thing that is made, seeming as though it would fade away to nothing, it was so small, we need to have knowledge of this. We should take as nothing everything that is made so that we can love and have God who is unmade. For this is the reason why we are not at ease in heart or soul, that we seek here rest in this thing that is so little, where no rest can be, and are unknowing of our God who is very rest. He wills us to know him, and he likes that we rest in him. All that is below cannot be enough for us. And this is the reason why no soul can be at rest until it is naughted of everything that is made, when the soul is willingly made naught for love, there to have him who is all, then she will be in real rest. And I think that's a very beautiful sort of passage, really. And then she was very keen on this, but also our good Lord showed that it's full great pleasure to him that a simple soul should come to him nakedly, plainly, and homely. She, was, she said a lot about sin, actually, and she was very good on sin. She, um, she saw that sin has a dynamic quality which lends itself to transformation into the opposite, if you like. She was all for sinners. <laughs> she, she thought you almost had to sin, really, in order to sort of find yourself and to, to see the opposite of sin. 
whereas mindless inertia to her was a far graver problem and much more likely to wreck the world. She said God showed that sin shall be no shame but rather worship to man for just as with every sin there is a corresponding pain so for every sin there is given bliss to the same soul by love. Sin is the sharpest scourge that any soul can be smitten with. Now the cloud of unknowing, the author of the cloud of unknowing is anonymous, nobody knows who he was. They know when it was written pretty well and they've got now some idea that it was probably it used to be thought, I think it was Evelyn Anderson, who thought that it must be a monk, because it's so profound and so um, must have needed so much sort of meditation to right, reach. But now they don't think it was so. The only real fact established about him, and this is deduced from language and reference, not a sort of natural fact, is that he lived in the latter part of the 14th century in the East Midlands of England and it's most likely he was a priest for the large parish. <laughs> so otherwise we don't know anything about him, but he wrote some of the most profound and beautiful material that's ever been written, I think, on uh, spiritual matters in England. And of course the cloud of unknown has now become really quite famous. All of Huxley that censored one of his novels, I think, around the author of it, as being, was it very eminent? or one of those, I think, had a lot of the cloud unknown. And he took Dionysius fairly up a his great model. And I think one of the passages I've got here is, when you go apart by yourself in solitude, he was very full of very good advice about meditation. Do not think about what you will be doing afterwards and put away all good thoughts as well as all evil ones and do not pray with words unless you feel you really must. Or if you do have something to say, do not look at how much or how little it is, nor what it means, whether it's a hymn or any other prayer, general or specific, silently formed within or spoken out loud. And look that nothing remains in your conscious mind but a naked intent stretching unto God, not clothed in any particular thought about God, what he is like in himself or any of his works, but only that he is as he is. Let him be so, I pray you, and do not make him otherwise. Pry no further into him by subtlety of intelligence. Let faith be your solid ground. That naked intent, emptied of ideas and grounded in very faith, shall be to your thoughts and feelings a naked thought and a blind feeling of your own being. As if with your whole heart you said to God, That which I am, good Lord, I offer to you, without any looking at the nature of your being, but only that you are as you are, without any more. Let that quiet darkness be the whole of your mind and a mirror for you. Think no more about your personality than I did you do of God, so that you are one with him just as you are, without any fragmenting or disturbance of the mind. For he is your beingness, and in him you are that you are, not only because he is the cause 
and being of all that is, but he is because he is in you, both your cause and your being. Very, very emphatic on that. And he continues a lot about let your thought be naked and your feeling unattached and you just simply as you are so that the touch of God may fill you with the realisation of him just as he is. Oh yes, and he was very practical too. He's um, referring to the sort of basic insecurity that we all have. The, the suffering that we go through because we really find it hard to know who we are and to be absolutely sort of at one with life as it is. And he said, um, take good gracious God as he is, flat and plain as a plaster, and lay it to your sick self as you are. <laughs> That's a very good one. Or bear up your sick self as you are and try to touch good gracious God as he is, the touching of whom is endless health. So he again was very anxious to talk about the actual experience of knowing the God ground as oneself. And he wasn't concerned with any theology about it. You don't get any theology in the, in the cloud of unknowing. It's all experience, all practical advice. And uh, consequently, that's what makes it so very sort of striking, I think. Oh yes, he's got, uh, he, he has the idea that another way of meditation, he had several methods, and another way is the way which today we would call mantra, which is the repeating of a sound or a word, uh, constantly repeating it within your within your mind, if you like, or within your heart, as you would say, so that it somehow brings your whole being into a sort of one-pointedness within your And so he advises a word, and he says, this word shall be your shield and your sword, and I think to take it in that way is a very, very good one. It's, it's uh, many people have found that as a shield, <laughs> if you like, in distressing circumstances, one can come back to the word that, that matters to you and repeat it to yourself and instantly you're given a sense of strength, if you like. And he also takes it, you see, as a sword that it's going to open you up, it's going to penetrate you and penetrate you very, very deeply let you be open. And he says, a man or woman, terrified by some impending disaster, which has taken him to the limits of his own resources, is driven by panic and needs to make a great cry or prayer for help. Yet how? Surely not in many words, nor even in one word of two syllables. <laughs> Why is that? Because he has no time to do more than burst out in a great and desperate cry of, for instance, fire, or out, or help. And just as this one little word fire pierces and alerts the ears of others, so does a little word of one syllable, when not only is it spoken and thought, but when it surges up out of the depths of a man's spirit, pierce the ears of Almighty God more than does any long psalm mindlessly mumbled in the teeth. <laughs> And so it is written that short prayer pierces heaven. And why does it pierce heaven, this little short prayer of one syllable? Surely because it is the prayer of a man's whole being, 
praise with all the heights and depths and lengths and breadth of his spirit. It is high because it is the most mighty prayer of his heart. It is deep because in this little syllable it gathers all the awareness of the spirit. It is long because were it to go on feeling in this way it would cry out always. And it is broad because it wills for all others what it wills for itself. So, I won't go on giving you too many excerpts because I think after a time it's time for you to take part. But I thought I would just, before I finish, um, give you a little bit of Eckhart who is perhaps really the greatest of them all. It's very hard to choose among these mystics. I have a third English mystic in here who's not very well known, Richard Rowell. He again is one who felt great heat in his body and heard, heard marvellous sounds, music. Was a very lyrical um, mystic. But none of them, I think, except perhaps the cloud of unknowing, ever quite reached the heights of Eckhart. In his, in, Eckhart has a marvellous grasp of it all, especially with his timing, this thing of time and of the nowness of things and this, how essential it is to sort of feel yourself to be aware in the present moment which was way really ahead of his time I think we talk of this far far more in this century than they did in that but some of the things he said, I've put down a few here and I thought I would give them to you um, the I by which I see God is the same eye by which he sees me. My eye and the eye of God are one eye, one vision, one knowledge, and one love. To his congregations, I mean, he, had, he was a very popular preacher, and he would say things such as, Our Lord says to every living soul, I became man for you. If you do not become God for me, you do me wrong. <laughs> And he says, begin with yourself and abandon yourself. In truth, if you do not first flee from yourself, wherever else you may flee, you will find hindrance and trouble, wherever it be. And that is that you should come out of yourself, insofar as you are a created being, and let God be God in you. Many people imagine here to have creaturely being and divine being yonder. That's not so. By that, many are deceived. A man beholds God in this life in the same perfection and is blessed in exactly the same way as in the afterlife. And that was the sort of thing the church did not like to hear. <laughs> God is near to us, but we are far from him. God is in, we are out. God is at home, we are strangers. And he, I think that sort of thing must have puzzled many people <laughs> among his parishioners, but they, they loved him nevertheless. And his feet were always on the ground, however sort of high he thought in his spirit. And he said, as I have often said, even if a man were in rapture like St. Paul and knew a sick man who needed some soup from him, I should think it's far better you left the rapture for love and served the needy man in greater love. <laughs> And he tempered his own difficult ideas, if you like, by giving very simple advice. He said, you must find out what God wants from you most. 
for men are by no means all called to follow one way. If you find your nearest way is not through many external works and great pains and privileges, which really do not matter so very much, unless a man is specially impelled from by God and has the strength to do these things well and without disturbing his, his inner life, if then you do not find anything like that in yourself, be quite content and do not worry about it. Now you might say, if this really does not matter, why then have these things been done by so many saintly forebears of ours? Now think, our Lord gave them this way, but also the strength to see that they could carry it through, and this was his good pleasure for them. But God has not attached salvation to any particular way. And I'll just step in because it's a very interesting poem that he wrote. Actually, it's not quite certain that he wrote this, but it's so much the sort of thing he said, and it came out at that time, and so it sort of concludes more or less that he wrote it. But it's a very mysterious poem, really. The threefold clasp we cannot grasp, the circled span no mind can scan, but here's a mystery fathomless. Check and mate, time, form, estate. The wondrous ring holds everything. Its central point stands motionless. The peak sublime, deedless, climb if you are wise. Your way then lies through desert, very strange to see. So deep, so wide, no bounds described. This desert there of then or there, in modeless singularity. This desert place, no foot did pace, no creature mind ingress confined. It is, yet truly none knows what. Tis there, tis here, tis far, tis near, tis high, tis low. Yet all we know is, this it's not, and that it's not. 